Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Moore. This is episode number three. Today, we'll be talking about volatility. You know, in the book, Broken Pie Chart, I did a lot of work about the 60-40 portfolio and what's really deficient in that and how short volatility might become an asset class. And so, uh, without further ado, I wanted to bring on, well, actually, I have a guest, the inaugural guest on the uh, Broken Pie Chart podcast is none other than Jay Pestercelli. Jay is the author of Buy and Hedge and also the founder of Zega Financial. Jay, how are you doing today? Derek, doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm uh, I'm honored to be your first guest on the podcast. This is great. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh we've done two solo, but uh you know, people going to Get tired of hearing me talk, so I figured it'd be good to bring you on. So thanks never, for never, never. We'll never get tired of hearing you talk. <laughs> By the way, I'm I'm guessing this is probably going to have to be a two parter because we're gonna, we want to talk about volatility. We want to talk about hedging. I don't think we'll get to hedging today, so I'm going to have to have you back on, and we'll just leave the mic going. But you know, the the thing that uh, is really interesting, and the reason why I wanted to have you on is I use uh, high probability option strategies, so short volatility, but there's a lot of misconceptions about what volatility is as an asset class, and it's really an emerging asset class. And really, it's it's one of those things that there's a lot of misconceptions you hear about the VIX. And so let's kind of talk through those. I mean, first, Jay, is you know the idea of it used to be stocks and bonds. Now it might be stocks or hedged equity and volatility, right? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, we, you know, at Zega, which, uh, you know, gosh, we've been doing some sort of volatility selling for well over eight years at this point. And then, you know, you and I personally for a lot longer than that, uh, really selling volatility and generating income uh, as kind of an alternative means of, of filling out the portfolio ha- is just becoming more and more popular. I don't know any sophisticated manager that isn't deploying some sort of premium selling strategy in their overall uh, portfolio allocation. It just has to be going forward something that's needed to create the right kind of diversification and income that's just different than, say, the fixed income world. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned bonds because for many, many years, the whole idea is that somebody starts out and they're a little bit more aggressive when they're really younger and they have mostly stocks. And we know the numbers, there's 70, 100 years of returns. And then as someone gets to you know, 10, 15 years to retirement, the whole idea is that you take some of the risk off the table vis-a-vis you reduce your exposure to to equities and you start to go more into bonds. But And, and I did a lot of work on this too in, in the book Broken Pie Chart, looking at some historical things on bonds. But with really, really low yields, it presents this interesting situation. In fact, if you look at bonds, you know, historically, most of the return has come from the interest rate. In other words, what the bond paid. Very little has come from the market value return. But the problem right now is that people aren't earning much in bonds and, and the real return above inflation is very limited. But if you if you look at even a period in, in the late 1970s, early 80s, where interest rates were going up, although bonds lost value, the interest paid was still like 9, 10%. In fact, I'm looking at 1979, the coupon rate was 10.38%. Interest rates went up about one and a half percent. If you it actually had a positive return for the year, but if you take out that really juicy interest payment, they lost roughly ten percent. And so it seems like income generation or short volatility 
might be one of the things, it's a substitute for the classical bond portfolio, right? Yeah, I mean, you got to go somewhere else for it. Um, The way that you just... I mean, the data is amazing. Uh, interestingly enough, I think this year, when you look at the aggregate bond market, you know, even with the interest payments, it might be down for the year. So it's one of those things that uh, you know, if you're trying to diversify yourself and trying to create different slices in the in the pie chart, the the old way is broken, as you said. And I love the name of your book, of course, Derek. It's great. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, I I really do think you need to. It's it's imperative you go elsewhere to find that regular income. Of course, it all comes with a, a different set of risks that may you know, may or may not fit everybody. But in all honesty, uh, you manage your risk up front, right? It's, it's one of those things that we all, we all talk about. But uh, manage the risk up front and let the portfolios do what they're going to do. Adding something like premium selling or the high probability option spread we were just talking about is a great way to round out that pie chart and round out the portfolio. It's sort of fascinating too, because most of the, and I did a, an episode, I'll link to it in the show notes about sort of demystifying the retirement calculator, but most of those retirement calculators and those projections are based upon the assumption that in the final 10 years or so, if you average 7%, you'll get a double. In other words, if somebody has half a million dollars in the 10 or 12 years before retirement, you need another double. But the challenge is, you know, if 2008 taught us anything, it's we're going to have some rocky patches. We also have flat markets. And then if you're using fixed income to try and generate premium, there's little real return. So that critical, I call it the base maximization period where you've got a pile of money and you're trying to figure out, you got to get to a number to generate enough balance to take uh, income off that. It's isn't short premium strategies, Jay, one of the ways to to maybe earn money in, in different types of market conditions, right? Yeah, I mean, the great thing about it, if if done, well, certainly the way we do it and others, uh, if you do it the right way, it has no you know, real correlation or no, no tie to the performance of the stock market, right? Or the fixed income market, right? It's meant to be a completely different asset class and it's going to do what it's going to do as its own set of you know, uh, criteria that generates returns, positive returns, and its own set of criteria to generate uh, or that could cause losses. And so, I, yeah, it's it's really is a better, well, you know, better's in the eye of the beholder. But if you have a target for, for growth over those last 10 years, I mean, if you're looking for a double, you need to hit that 7.2 number. And not everything's going to do that in every environment. Derek, I'm going to, I'm actually going to ask you a quick question. When t- talking about selling premium, you know, how have you can, like, how have you composed portfolios that actually, you know, use that kind of a strategy? Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is you think about the 60-40 and the 80-20. And by the way, when we say 60-40, it's 60% one asset class, 40% the other. The way I look at selling premium is there's probably a slice of the portfolio. And it, you know, we, we always, you know, in our industry, right, we got to throw a lot of caveats to the right client for the right risk tolerance. Of course, all the all of those things are true. But in my mind, it, it's about taking, you know, a smaller slice of the portfolio in trying to generate a little bit of an outside return. By, by taking that smaller slice, uh, although it has a different risk component, taken uh, at, a, at a very small level, it reduces the overall portfolio. So in my mind, it's kind of like, look, we need to generate some, some income. We need to generate some returns in even flat markets, slightly down markets, slightly up markets. But that's the way that I like to use it with clients is for the right client, let's just take a portion of the portfolio and generate some returns by selling premium. And because 
because of the ability to, to go, you know, the thing with premium to me is it's pricing in something that's unlikely to happen. We'll probably talk about volatility, but in my mind, that's the, that's sort of the calculus behind the way I use it. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's, that's right. And I know we're talking about kind of those critical years as you're, you know, still building, but you know, it's one of those things that, you know, picking your time frame doesn't always make sense when to allocate to, to this. I've always believed it should be a part of a portfolio from day one, whether you're 35 and you've got your 401k and you're able to scrap together enough money, scrape together enough money to put into a, a, an account that you can invest, you know, it should be a part of that. And as you move through the investing cycle, um, it should be a part of it all along because you know what? There's some years where selling volatility is amazing and some years where it's okay, it's mediocre. It's like, it's one of those things you never know Know, what kind of environment you're going to get, but trying to time your allocations can can be pretty dicey. Actually, most people get it wrong, uh, <laughs> and and not picking you know when you're going to uh, you know rotate or migrate from one strategy or one tactic to another can actually end up benefiting you later on, and uh, because you just you don't know what kind of environment you're going to get, and there's no strategy that works in every environment, right? And that's the whole point of picking these different strategies that are designed to hit your long term goal. Uh, over any kind of market cycle. You know, one of the things I think there's a lot of confusion about when we talk about selling premium or, or selling volatility, let, let's kind of define what that is. And, and the, the biggest thing that I can try, and one of the great examples is the options market is a great, uh, it, it's used as a predictor of where we think or where the market thinks that an underlying asset will go, whether it's a stock or whether it's an index. So let's say the S&P 500, which is a broad-based index, and the options market believes that over the next six months or a year, it will go up. And, and by the way, do you remember the bell curve, right? Everyone remembers the, the whole grading on a curve, and um, 68% of the time, you know, you're within the bell curve. I know everyone can picture it right now. That's called one standard deviation. But you know, when you look in and you're trying to figure out, okay, the market believes that the S&P will go up or down 10%, they're going to price derivatives, i.e. options, uh, based upon that fact. And so premium is really the market's way of saying, you know, if we're going to take the other side of the trade, that's what you have to pay us because we believe it will move in that fashion. And, and you look at something like, uh, like the options market, generally, Jay, right, there's more premium embedded in options on the downside, at least since the 80s, right? Yeah, typically the puts carry more volatility. Yes, more. And you know, maybe to simplify it, and I know you're you're giving the straight the straight description, which is 100 percent accurate. But I, I, maybe we talk, you know, as kind of the whole fear concept, right? I mean, markets fall out of windows and climb upstairs. Part of the reason why you know the the downside of the market carries a little bit more premium is because when the market goes down, it seems to happen a lot faster. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean that's really. I always think about it, it's it's the person on the other side of the trade. You know, it doesn't work like this. But Jay, if you're on one side of the trade and I'm on the other, and you say, "Look, I wanna I wanna take the position that the market will uh, will not go down." Well, I'm gonna have to embed a little. You know, it's not a free lottery ticket, right? I'm not giving you zero no, cost. Of course not. So I, I got to take that. But you're right. I mean, and and it's really people are look. The market is net long. Net long meaning people are long securities. They're not net short, meaning they don't hope it goes down. And so people look to buy protection on the downside. They're not saying, oh boy, I hope the market doesn't go to 4,000. You know, the market right now is about 2,800 or so, right? So 
you're right. I mean, there, there is that embedded fear premium on the downside. And, you know, if you can take a little bit of that, that's, uh, that becomes interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, for lack of a better analogy, it might be like saying you're selling insurance, right? You're, you know, when you're selling premium there, there, you could be viewed as someone who's kind of selling insurance, right? Who's collecting regular premiums. I mean, it's no coincidence that the term premium is used in insurance as well as option strategies, especially when we talk about selling premium. Um, they are they are tied together because they act sometimes in very similar ways. And um, while nobody wants to be the insurance agent when a hurricane comes flying through Florida, uh, but you know what? There aren't hurricanes every day. And you can make money selling away that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of an event. And when you take positions that have a very high probability of working in your favor, you may not mind selling the insurance and being the insurance carrier. I, uh, I like to say, and this isn't always the case in, in our world, Derek, of course, but you know, when's the last time you heard of an insurance carrier going out of business, right? There's something to be said for selling protection. Um, I know AIG was the big name 10 years ago as having real problems, but it got bailed out. Insurance carriers don't go out of business, right? They probably should more often, but they don't. <laughs> well, we like to be on that side of the trade because every day there's not a disaster. You're getting paid a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, hopefully that didn't take us too far off the path, Derek. But when I think about the benefits of selling premium, I think about, you know, collecting uh, on that uh, fear and protection that others may have. By the way, we're not always on that side of that trade, right? There's other times where we're on the on the protection side of the trade. And I guess that will hold off on the, the hedging conversation until before we go there, I guess. But that's why I like to think about selling premiums. Sometimes you're selling protection to others and you're getting paid while you wait that no disaster occurs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think about the car insurance, my car insurance company has made definitely been a net profiter off me over the years. Knock on, knock on anything I can find here. Right. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I pay the premium. They're selling, essentially they're collecting monthly premium for me. Every month I pay it. And their risk is I get into some sort of accident that exceeds the the total amount that I paid them over the years. Although I think I get I pay them so much that that would be uh, not possible. But yeah, I mean that's really the thing. It's like I, you know, I'm paying the premium, they collect it. And the only way that they lose money if there's some, you know, based upon their historical calculations that there's a loss that exceeds what they bring in, right? I mean, yeah. and, and it's really similar to that. That's right. That's right. And actually, it's it's. I'm glad you brought up the actual, you know, your insurance company being profitable on you. I mean, I don't I don't have the exact number in front of me, but the most recent data that I've heard has been, you know, one out of every thousand people are profitable on their car insurance or homeowners insurance. So that means 99.9% of the time, the insurance company is making money selling insurance to you. Jay, for some reason, my house is in a uh, in a flood plan in Arizona. I can't figure it out, although we do have <laughs> monsoons and it, it's very rare that it rains, but I'd like to be selling that insurance here uh, anyway. So when we talk about uh, you know premium and volatility, I think one of the big misconceptions out there is a lot of people have heard about the VIX index, V-I-X, right? And so the VIX index, it's just a short-term, uh, it's a measurement of short-term uh, volatility premium. Okay, what the heck does that mean? Well, I mean, right, Jay, it's it's uh, historical volatility says, hey, let's look at an asset and how much did it go up or down beyond the average. And then implied volatility is looking forward, and that's what premium is trying to uh, price in. But the VIX is not necessarily what 
we're doing, right? No, not at all. Actually, while the VIX is kind of the broad-based measurement, it only really um, looks at, say, the S&P 500 and the volatility in that option chain. So it doesn't even you know, reflect anything past 30 days for the S&P 500. And while that's useful if you're a day trader, we're not. We're investors. And while we are you know, using shorter-term trades, I will say um, you know, the VIX, you know, we're not short the VIX, we're not long the VIX. The VIX is a really interesting instrument. It's actually, to me, it's not even an instrument. It's a calculation. You can't actually buy the VIX, right? You might be able to buy futures, but you can't buy it, right? It's just a data point. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the selling of premium and connecting it to the VIX. Now they are, they are linked, but you know, that's, that's it. There's, there's an association, but only that the VIX is a, a representation of what, you know, the other positions are doing. So I don't, you know, you're right. It's not the VIX. We're not trading the VIX. We're not investing in the VIX. We're not selling the VIX. It's the VIX is kind of the the barometer, right? Think about it as the barometer of the weather. And uh, that's really all how you use it. And um, while you, you did say something that is a very popular term, which is the fear index, I um, there's a lot of ways to describe it. I think that's accurate. The VIX spikes quicker when the market is selling off fast or quickly. Um, but the VIX also can move up when the markets are moving higher. And, you know, it is really, to me, I've always felt it's more of an indication of what investors are willing to pay to speculate or how much they're willing to pay up for a larger move compared to say yesterday or a week ago, or what they're willing or what they think the market will be in a month from now. And it's not always high, lower, sometimes it's higher. It's really, to me, it's always been a spec, a reflection of speculation in the market and how much people are willing to pay up to capture a near-term move. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right, Jay. That's spot on. And and when I think about selling uh, volatility premium uh, or option premium, uh, the way I sort of think about it is if I if I start out, if you put your hands, by the way, if you're driving, don't do any of this. Keep your hands on the wheel, ten and two, eyes forward. But if you're home, if you took your your hands and you put them together, and you think that's the current market, that's where the current level of the called the S and P or the Nasdaq or or the Russell two thousand. That's the level. And then if you took your hands and you moved them above and below by a, a certain distance above and below that current market, really what's selling volatility premium and the way that you know we use it for, for clients, you, you take and, and you stretch your hands above and below the market and there's points above and below the market that have a very low probability in sort of the next uh, you know, four or five weeks of a market getting there. And that's really what you're selling uh, is the outsized premium that something won't happen, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, so you're 100% right, Derek. There are a lot of ways to sell premium. The way we look at selling premium is we we let the options market tell us uh, where, you know, there's a high probability that it goes. And then we take positions uh, that benefit from the market not going to those areas of low probability. It's almost like it's a double negative, right? Like we're, we benefit from the improbable not occurring, right? <laughs> so and it's a weird way to think about it, but you're right. Um, I, I don't, I don't know how many, how many folks out there have, have ever used a strategy like this, but you know, typically when you invest, you need the market to move higher if you're long, right? Hey, I bought something, it goes up, I'm worth more. Or if I shorted something, I sold it and I make money when it goes down. This doesn't, deal with any of that really, right? This benefits from the natural time decay of options. It's taking positions that have a real high probability of success. Meaning, you know, when you look at where options are priced and where the options market is forecasting the market will go, 
um, we take positions that benefit from it not doing something highly, highly unusual. May, I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, Derek, but trying to, you know, uh, uh, fix that as, as, as you need to. But it's, it's, it's a different way of investing, which is why it's an alternative, right? We take positions that have a high probability of success. Yeah, and I think the, the benefit there is when you think about where a current market is and you say, okay, we're going to take a position that's really far away from the current market. We're going to generate some, some income off that or some premium, some return. And in order to get that return, we've got to sort of take a slice of the portfolio and, and sort of set that aside as collateral for, for their premium that's coming in. And, and the idea is that you want to do that again and again. We mentioned probability and, you know, probability can get a little bit confusing and, and uh, it's, it's more intricate, but to keep it sort of, uh, you know, I, I always say about the bell curve and uh, the one standard deviation is within that bell curve. Meaning most, if you were going to take a, a class of 30 people and everyone's going to take a test, most people are going to be inside of that. And then what, what, what on is the, the outside, percentage on the first standard deviation, Derek? What is it? 68%, right? That's right. So, you know, 68% of the people are going to be there. And then 95% of the people are going to be within two standard deviations, meaning you start to go a little bit further out. And then the real outliers, and I'm stretching my hands really wide right now, but the real outliers are sort of on the wings. And, but, you know, when you think about probability, uh, probability is not impossible. And so that's why there's still this embedded premium, right? Because even though it's highly unlikely, there's still a chance and, and market makers and uh, the markets really price that in. Uh, but probability is, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things it's, it helps to, to sort of shape, uh, where the trades are placed. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, 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 you're right. It's a little misleading. Like there are times we put on trades that have a, that the, the options math tells us we have a 99.5% chance of success. But that sounds pretty good, right? Taking that position. And there's a high likelihood that that thing will work, but you and I both know, um, improbable events occur you know, more often than that, that figure will tell us. However, uh, it is still a good guide to use when trying to figure out, you know, how safe of a position do you want to put on? Um, I, and this is, uh, you know, specific to the strategy that we're talking about here today, Derek, but, you know, an example of a strategy that we call high probability, um, you know, our success rate has been over 90%, 92% success rate. Not sure how many strategies out there delivering on a 92% success rate. And it's because we're using options to give us kind of the, 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 the guidelines as to here's where, here's where a, you know, a trade has a greater likelihood of being successful. And that really is what we're, we're reading in the options market almost every day. Um, you're right. Probability is this weird. It's not that weird converse, concept. Everybody kind of knows, you know, when you hear the weather, what's the chance that it's going to rain tomorrow. Uh, you know, we understand that we take, you know, to say, oh, the 30% chance of rain. Um, we're talking about scenarios where there's, you know, less than 1% chance of rain and we benefit when it doesn't rain. Like that's the kind of way that this, tra these trades work again, not normal, right. And not, a, not a standard investing strategy, but, um, certainly integral in the overall, uh, target when we, when we have performance levels we're trying to hit. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that it's dynamic. In other words, when the market... When the options market perceives there's a greater risk of volatility or, or higher moves, uh, it gets adjusted. And so the distance between a current market and where uh, 
your place in these trades actually gets further away when the market is more, or at least having more implied volatility and less. Yeah, sure. Because uh, it's like like I was talking about Florida, which is where I live, not Arizona. I don't know how you live in a floodplain in Arizona there, but <laughs> where I live in Florida, right? There's a hurricane season, and I mean, if this is so simple of an analogy, hey, if there, there's a hurricane a week away, guess what? Buying insurance that week is going to be pretty darn expensive, right? Why? Well, because there's a greater chance that that hurricane hits your house. So premiums go up. I mean, they're not that dynamic, of course, but they could be. I mean, logistically, that would make sense. And, you know, in the middle of winter and it's February and we don't really have any hurricanes in sight and it's not typical that you have it, buying insurance, if you were buying insurance for a month, it would be a heck of a lot cheaper. So when there's more fear, the seller of insurance, the seller of premium is uh, is going to be able to demand a higher rate, a higher income because they're taking a little more risk. Jay, I think you should try that this year. At some point, there'll be a hurricane off the coast of Florida. You should call a random insurance company and say, hey, look, I've never owned insurance before in my house, but I'm thinking about getting some hurricane insurance. Uh, he'll either give you a really high price or he'll say, you know, I'll, I'll be back to you later. Yeah, week, other, or he just won't take the action, right? That's exactly, that's, that's a great right. point. Maybe we'll, I'll do that. We're in the season. You know what? With probability, though, it's interesting. And, I, and I, in the book, Broken Pie Chart, and I'll, of course, I'll link to this. I'll link to Jay's book, Buy and Hedge. I, I do make mention of low probability doesn't mean impossible. And I, and I kind of made the analogy to, uh, I think I, I threw some odds there or, or probability of getting hit by lightning, which of course is very low. But I said, look, if you were going to get hit by lightning or you know, a safe was going to drop on top of your head and kill you, and there was a 5% probability that would happen, you probably wouldn't leave your house. You look at election probabilities and you know we know what happened last time and there were very low probabilities. Um, Low probability doesn't mean impossible. And that's where we get into so the, the risk management of this uh, and why professionals should be doing this, not sort of the, the part-timers, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, While we write, uh, I and uh, my, the other uh, author, Wayne Ferber, wrote, you know, 300-page book about options and how the individual can do it yourself. We included very, very little about probabilities and nothing about selling premium because it's one of those things that uh, – you know, takes takes regular attention. Um, I think you know this, Derek. But you know, when you have these types of positions that you put on, they need they need regular monitoring and regular oversight. So, um, you know, we 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 never want the insurance to go the wrong way on us. So you got to be careful, uh, and you got to pay attention. It's not for the casual investor, that's for sure. That's why I use professionals. It's interesting too. I mean, I have a, a chapter about volatility as an asset class, and I sort of explain generally the concept of placing trades at different places, but I made the conscious decision not to sort of give the the battle plans. And it reminds me of, you know, Tom Clancy is a, a famous author. By the way, he got famous because President Reagan had a copy of one of his early books that probably nobody read on his desk and the press had a picture of it. And then it sort of blew up from there. But in his books, he used to sort of leave out key details of, you know, building a contraption that would cause harm. Um, and it was just one of the things he did. I mean, to me, although I cover it in the book, and I know we we talk about it all the time, uh, it's it's really easy for someone to to get sort of uh, to lapse into a false sense of uh, security on some of this stuff. And so, in my mind, it's really it's systematic. It's a long term strategy uh, that happens to use short term options to express the uh, the posture of the long term strategy, but. Risk management is really paramount to the strategy. 
And apparently, Derek, we need to get our books on the president's desk now. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how, how we have that happen, but uh, <laughs> no, that's a true story. If you look that up. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's a great one. One of the things too, it's interesting because anything, and by the way, you and I have been in the markets probably since, I mean, me, probably mid nineties, early nineties, probably you the same, same amount. Right. We, we see these different strategies, whether it was buying, you know, telephonist to Mexico and then it was telephonist to Chile. It was like buy all these stocks. Then we had, you know, the internet boom. We had buy emerging markets. You know, I remember going in and uh, no, no offense to the the salesperson at the Wiz Electronics Store. Do they still exist, by the way, in, in New York, the Wiz? I don't know if they do. I haven't seen the Wiz in a while. I don't think so. All right. But I'm in there and, and you know, I told him I worked in the markets and he's he's taken out his prospectus for a, an emerging market fund. No, no offense against, you know, the person at the Wiz selling me a TV. But the point is that some of these strategies become a little too easy. And I think with volatility selling, that that was really easy for a while when we had the markets that we did. Uh, but in order for it to to really manage risk and to really be have some staying power, um, it's a big deal with sort of the calculus and the rules. And and what you do is interesting because you've got any number of rules before you actually place a position, right? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I, the thing I like the rule I like to talk about the most is we make sure our return exceeds our risk. So if we, you know, for example, are putting on a, uh, a trade that has a, you know, 98% chance of being successful, so the risk of loss is uh, we have a 2% chance of losing, we make sure we get paid more than 2% for that position, right? So we always like to say that our return exceeds our risk. And if I do this trade 100,000 times, I know over time, every once in a while I'll have some losers, but over time, the returns I'm going to generate in that in that that regular set of transactions is going to exceed my losses. And that really, in a, on, a, on, a, on a trading strategy designed for long-term investing, that's the key. You're not going to have some losers. We all have losers. There's no strategy that's infallible. Right. I'll just say that. I probably don't need to, but just in case. Um, so you have to plan that over time, the math works in your favor. Your return should always exceed your risk. That's my favorite criteria to follow. Yeah, no, and that's, that's a great point. I think a, another point that I like to make too is, it's all about the sizing. And so this isn't something that you would do with a with an entire uh, portfolio base. Right, exactly. It's a smaller slice, 10, you know, 10, 20%. It, it, it all varies, but it's a small slice. And so the risk, if the worst fears are realized, it's still as an overall piece of the, the portfolio. It's it doesn't have the same impact. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yes. And that, you know, that's when I when I asked you initially, hey, how do you use it in your portfolios? That's really where I was going. And uh, sorry, I didn't queue it up a little better for you, but I'm glad we got to it. Did, did I not give you the 10 or 20? I, th- I thought I said the number. Okay, yeah, go ahead. No, you might have. Um, but yeah, so you're right. It, depending on your, you know, who you are and who it's appropriate for, this is a strategy where, um, you know, this particular one is when you want to limit your exposure to, because when it goes wrong, it could go pretty, pretty wrong. You know, something that works 90% of the time means you're getting paid small amounts, but there must be some risk associated with it, right? And there is. Um, while we're, we've been successful at avoiding it a lot of times, it won't always happen that way. So you're right. Limiting the exposure to, uh, is important. You know, it's, it's, again, we just said it was risky, needs regular oversight. Neither of us wrote about it in our books because it needs regular oversight. It's one of those things that you want to manage the risk and how much you allocate to this kind of a, of an investment. To me, one of the, the things that I think is really important about this, and it goes back to sort of the, 
you know, look, everyone says, hey, the markets have returned X percent annualized per year, and they look at 100 plus years of S&P data. And by the way, you can find that. And then they look at bonds and, you know, it, look, bonds return what they return, but the, the reality is we're at such a low interest rate right now using historicals from periods of much higher interest rates may not tell the whole picture. But I go back to that whole deal with, you know, you've got the accumulation phase. And most investors, they accumulate, you're, you're sort of saving money, you're trying to stack the pie a little bit, build the asset base. And then you have this, this base of money and it's really the, the one or two sort of assumed, and I'm using air quotes, again, if you're driving, don't do the same, but you're assuming you're going to get, you know, a double or two based upon historics. And then you get to this distribution phase where you're starting to take money out of the portfolio. But I, one of the questions I ask in the book is, you know, what if we go down or sideways? And you think about somebody who had 10 years to retirement into, you know, imagine someone in 2008 who said, look, I'm going to retire in 2018. Uh, pretty much, I mean, it was a lost decade. And so to me, one of the important facts of this or as a strategy is the ability in flat markets to still potentially generate a return. And because if not, we're not maximizing that base, right? Yeah. And and you're right. It's it's why this type of thing should be a part of your portfolio, regardless of your one to three year market outlook. You should always have it. Um, because it is, again, it's not going to be correlated to anything else. Flat market, that's okay. Sideways market, down. This strategy is designed to generate returns, pretty much any environment. Believe it or not, you know, the, a little more fear in the environment is actually better for this strategy, right? Again, we like to sell insurance. Wouldn't you rather be selling insurance where you get paid more, right? That kind of a concept. And so you're right. It's it's designed to just be a part of the portfolio that generates returns uh, uh, in spite or despite of whatever the the market is doing. I read an article recently, Jay, and it was the whole premise of uh, withdrawal rates. And so there's this rule in our industry, and I forget who came up with it, but it's uh, once somebody you know comes up with a rule, it sort of sticks around. That's the four percent withdrawal rate. And in other words, if you're retired, you can withdraw four percent a year, and then you've got to exceed inflation and and uh, in, in sort of what you're earning. But there's been some doubt about that withdrawal rate with low bond yields. And, you know, you get to retirement, it's more like a 50-50 or a 40-60, 40% equity, 60% bonds. And so in my mind, this potentially is, is a way to try and generate the income or the return needed to match that withdrawal rate. Because, I mean, let's, let's face it, if you're in treasuries right now, a 10-year is just hit right around 3%. Uh, inflation's two and a half, you're earning half a percent real return a year. It's just not going to get it done. Yep. Yeah. You're going to need another way to do that. And this is definitely a piece of it. Listen, you, you and I both know there's a lot of different ways to generate money for withdrawals, whether it's, you know, high dividend stocks, whether it's, uh, you know, some pieces of maybe say high yield at times, uh, or it's stuff like selling premium, like this strategy. And so there's a, it should be a piece of it regardless. So I agree. And I, and you know, I don't think there are very many situations where it doesn't have some application to a portfolio. Um, it's just a matter of how much. So one of the things I wanted to ask too is if you can talk a little bit about, you know, I, I did the whole thing with my hands. I said below the market and above the market. Generally, there's more fear premium on the bottom side of the market. Uh, but really, you could be selling premium above the market. In other words, you're rooting for the market to not go up that much because you don't want it to get there as and the inverse, you're saying, I don't want it to go down enough 
that my positions would be impacted. But you can do this on either side of the, the trade, right? Sure, either side or both at the same time. We won't. Let's not go into that one. But yeah, oh you can, okay. it doesn't matter which side <laughs> of the market you're on. You go where the risk and the return profile uh, work to your advantage. And there are times where it makes sense to you know, uh, be on the, you know, kind of above the market, taking a position that says, hey, the market's not going to go up 7% in a month. And you could benefit from that. Uh, there are times where it says, hey, the market's not going to drop more than 15% in a month. You could benefit from that. You're right. The, there usually is a little more leeway or a little distance when you're on the, you know, uh, uh, the bull side of things, meaning putting positions on that are below where the market is. But um, in years of turbulence, uh, it it doesn't mean the strategy is going to have a problem necessarily. Actually, years of turbulence, we end up taking, you know, more, uh, I'll say, less risky positions of, you know, uh, selling positions or, or taking positions that don't uh, uh, have a problem when the market's down, right? They benefit from the market being up slightly sideways or down a lot. That's that's absolutely possible. We, we I probably shouldn't even say the word, but that's selling a call spread, right? Using calls on the upside, puts on the downside. Um, to keep that in, in perspective, um, I mentioned before that, you know, the markets climb upstairs and fall out of windows. Um, you know, a slow rising market, even like one that we've had, you know, like in 2016, 21% over a year is not that outstanding as far as market performance goes. Um, if you could, you know, take your time and say, hey, on a monthly, uh, on a monthly uh, uh, trade, we want to get, you know, 7 to 8% away from the market. And if it doesn't go up 7% in a single month, we're good. Well, guess what? That's profitable. And that strategy benefits from a sideways to downward or even slightly up market. So you're right. Market direction, Derek, is not is not critical for the strategy to, uh, to, to, to be profitable. We take positions, again, that have a great return versus the risk. And that may, be, that may mean bearish or bullish. You know, you wrote an article. We may have co-written it. I don't remember. We'd have to look at it. But we, we had an article that went out. And it asked the question, how many doubles that you need? And I, I think it's it's worth uh, sort of getting into a little bit. You know, a lot of people look at the markets and say, I've got to earn so much every year. But the reality is, uh, and this is probably a part two, you know, with, with managing the downside and hedging. But the reality is, for someone who is working and putting away money, I think you asked the question, you know, how many doubles do you need? Really, it's, you know, as you said, if you're in 7.2% annualized uh, in 10 years, every 10 years, there's a double. And so it takes less than people think, but some of this goes to the market conditions. And if you've got a flat market, equities are not going to go up. So, but there's not that, you know, can you talk about the whole double things? I'm, I'm not leading you the right way, Jay, but you know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know what you mean, and so you're right. We, I don't know when I when I speak with prospective clients and even other advisors, I talk about okay, how many doubles do do we need to get to hit our hit the number? Right, most people talk about having enough money to retire. That that seems to be the hey, I don't want, I don't want to outlive my money. Unfortunately, well, unfortunately, who knows? Right, we're, we're we should plan to live to ninety years at least these days. You know, I don't. It, it'd be great if that happened for everybody, but people stop working at sixty five, right? So to uh, to, to figure out, you know, how much you need before you can, you know, redu reduce your income uh, is important. And so I always start with the math of how many doubles do you need uh, to, 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 get to, your, to get to that number? And 
you know, taking out negative years, like, which is why we hedge is really important on helping you hit that, you know, the rate you need for doubles, but then using an alternative, like the strategy we're talking about here today, like this high probability strategy, um, one that to date has never had a negative calendar year using this kind of a strategy also goes into that math because you need to count on gains when the market isn't always your friend. You and I both know markets are designed to go up over time. You just said it before. Most people are long the market. And the way that our markets are built, they're going to go up over time. The up years far exceed the down years. However, you know, your timing has to be such that, you know, you got to avoid the down years when possible. Um, but during those periods, counting on a regular return from a strategy like this is really important. And, you know, while this strategy historically has returned, geez, you know, 20%, I think these days we're shooting more for a 10%. Um, you know, hitting a 10% return on average is a great number that helps most folks meet their number of doubles that they need. You know, you, we mentioned the markets are designed to go up over time. I think that's certainly the case. And historically, we can see that. But I think there's a lot of investors out there who, you know, you look at March of uh, 2000, right? That was the, uh, the top in the NASDAQ. It was something like 16 years before that prior peak was exceeded. And I know people would say, well, Valuations got so out of whack that wasn't real. But the reality is, you know, if people owned positions, they didn't really see any advancement. And there's sort of this difference between a cyclical bull market where you exceed a prior high or just going from the low to the high. But we look at 2008, I mean, it was roughly, uh, you know, eight years or so. Uh, I, I haven't looked at it recently. So markets do go up over time. Stairs and windows, right? Stairs and windows. Yep. And you've got the, these things. And so, uh, by the way, folks, if you like the content that you're, uh, you're hearing and you want to check out some of the other episodes or want more information, uh, my website is www.razorwealth.com. That's R-A-Z-O-R. The rest will be up to you if you want to check out those. Jay, in the, in the time remaining, I thought we'd, we'd spend a little bit of time. You, know, you and I were involved in, uh, in sort of running and, and involved in uh, investor education at a, at a major brokerage firm. I don't, can we say the firm? I guess we Why can. Not? Right? It's all over a bias. Yeah, so TD Ameritrade, we were there. And one of the things that you and I was involved with, we sort of looked at the idea of going out and teaching people how to trade. But it was more than that. It was really teaching people to manage risk. And one of the things I thought would be interesting is sort of the lessons that that we learned from from talking to, to all these folks. You know, it, one of the things, the first things that I noticed, most people, would go into an investment and get very attached to it. And then they would fall into, I think Jack Schwager called this the hope, wish, and pray strategy where, you know, they, they buy something, it goes up, but then it goes down. You hope it goes back up, it goes down further. You wish you would have sell it. And then it goes down so far, you find religion, you pray, and you hope to get back to break even. And I mean, that, that when you and I had first met, I mean, that was sort of the, the very scenario we were trying to, uh, to help people avoid. And, uh, but I think it's sort of interesting. I learned a lot during those years. I know you did too. And, you know, the lessons that we saw from people, it was sort of repeatable lessons, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the 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 characteristics uh, of, of investors, to certainly the do-it-yourselfers hasn't changed much over time. Um, you and I both observed plenty of things. And unfortunately, the same lessons were learned by investors over and over and over again. Uh, I uh, Gosh, I, th- it's why we started the education in the first place, right? You wanted to help the individuals that were doing it themselves to figure out a way to generate success over the long term. 
And uh, that it was you, you. You saw so many people making the same mistakes. I'll tell you one of the one of the, the most popular one we saw is exactly what you said: not cutting your losses sooner. Right? I mean, so many folks would hold on to losers way too long, whether they're you know not using limit orders or or stop orders or even options to hedge. Then the mistakes were. We're, we're, we're the same. It was like, you know, like this is, uh, it's, I've seen this story play out before many, many times. And I know however many times you were on stage, Derek, you would tell people like, you're not going to be right a hundred percent of the time. The trick is finding when the losers are going to get you and getting out of the way of them some way. And I think, I think I told you about this study. I'm actually, I know I told you about the study and it's in our book. When we looked at the, you know, the swath of all the clients at that firm, and we looked at the ones that beat the market and the ones that didn't, the ones that really had a catastrophic loss. They, they, um, they look very similar, same education, same number of times they've logged in, same platforms they use, same products they'd use. But the guys, that, guys and gals that did really well compared to the ones that did really poorly, the difference was cutting losers sooner. Managing risk is really what drives your, uh, your long-term growth. And guess what? The great thing is you can control your risk. You can't control your outcome. You can control your risk. And that is defining, hey, how much am I willing to lose on a particular position? And how much am I willing to allocate to a particular position in case things go sideways? Think about those things. And doing that saves tons of, I'm making my quotes now like you are, hope and praying to get back to you. <laughs> you know, it's funny too. And and I always found, and, and you and I used to come up with these, these trading ideas, we call them tuition because you would pay a tuition when you did a, a type of trade and you didn't really know what you were doing. Uh, but it was awfully fun. And hopefully it was with a, a sh- really small amount of money. But all of us have done this. You know, we, we sort of learn by, uh, by putting in trades and I certainly had some tuition uh, payers. Ah, we've had a few to together, as, well. as I recall. <laughs> the other interesting thing, too, is I think in in transitioning, as you and I both did, over to the uh, you know the advisor side and helping individuals, uh, and you, of course, helping uh, advisors and institutions and in helping individuals uh, that they deal with. There, there's sort of a different set of mistakes, and one of the things that I I was sort of always fascinated with is one is. Uh, the portfolios that sometimes you see, I mean, it's really a, a, a motley crew of assets that aren't really tied together, or they might have stuff in, in you know, 10, 12 different places, old 401ks that don't really have a, a, you know, a rhyme or reason. And the other thing I, I saw was sort of this, and I touched this on, on this in the book, uh, the idea that, you know, uh, target date funds, or, you know, I read an article that uh, I should buy solar stocks. I think I'm still seeing, though, you know, it, it's a different set of sort of challenges for individuals. Uh, but hopefully, you know, that that's one of the things we're able to help them out. But I don't know if you've I was sort of surprised to see the different set of, of sort of mistakes on on this side of it. You mean like the type of allocation that, you know, when you take a look at how someone's invested? Yeah. 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 yeah it's uh, you know, listen, it's hard to beat the markets. Right. It's hard to keep up with the way the broad indexes perform. I think you have this data point, something like 85% of professionals underperform the S&P 500 every year. I think it's, that's amazing to me. Like, wait a minute. Oh, we're paying all these people to go out and make great investment decisions for us. And they're underperforming just the S&P 500, right? So trying to pick stocks is a really, is a really dicey thing. And let's face it, um, there are times you could, you could get in a position where a single stock could blow up your whole portfolio. 
right, where it doesn't impact an index. And so I'm not sure if this is where you were going with this, Derek, but I continue to see single stock risk spread all over the place when I talk to individual clients. And even if they pick, you know, seven winners, two that are kind of flat, and that one loser, it just totally skews their returns. And it all counts. It all counts. You could say you're 70% accurate, but it all counts when that one loser drags you all the way down. So, you know, we've, you know, for me, for us at Zega, and I think you agree to, uh, certainly to to a degree, uh, uh, Derek, is that, you know, trying to pick stocks or trying to pick sectors sometimes is a very difficult game. And you're fighting professionals that even they don't get it right. Well, I think we'll, uh, we're going to leave it here for this episode. Uh, Jay, you'll be back for, uh, we're going to call it episode two. And, and just to tease a little bit, you know, one of the things we mentioned bonds and some of the, the challenges with low interest rates. I think there's, there's a lot of folks out there who probably need more growth uh, in order to get to a number. But the challenges, uh, traditional allocations offer little or no protection on the downside. And so as we come back for episode two, Jay, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get into hedging, uh, how to maybe try for more growth and um, thinking about what happened in, in 2008 and how investors can can avoid that. So I look forward to uh, to bringing you back for episode two. Uh, that will be up shortly. And Jay, thanks again for uh, for joining us. Yeah, Derek, thanks for having me. Real pleasure. Love having a long talk with you, man. This was great. All right, folks, we'll be back with episode four on hedging your investments next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.